0: Ted Audio Collective.
1: I don't know when your company does this or if your company does this, but usually there's a point in the year where it's time for your performance review. Yep. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are some areas of improvement? What are some goals you need to focus on? And for lots of people, the experience makes you anxious. What are some ways to have a more healthy relationship with this process? I'm Madhupa Akinola. This is Ted Business. Our speaker today is author, former anchor of ABC News, and a dear friend of mine, Dan Harris. In this talk, Dan shares how practicing mindfulness and meditation completely changed his life and his experience with feedback. Then after the talk, Dan and I have a deep conversation about life after ABC News and his continued journey of self-improvement. But first, a quick break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here Buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash investing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com.
2: If you've ever worked in the corporate world, you probably have heard of this diabolical exercise. (laughs) It's an anonymous survey with your uh, bosses, peers, and direct reports. And the idea is to get a panoramic sense of your strengths and weaknesses. I opted for the colonoscopy version of a 360 review, (laughs) which included my wife, my brother, and two of my meditation teachers. In all, 16 people gave hour-long confidential interviews, and I was then handed a 39-page report Brimming with blind quotes. I can tell you're looking forward to hearing the results, uh, sadists. Um, but I'm going to make you wait a second because uh, I should give you a little background on me. I, I used to be an anchorman. I worked at ABC News for 21 years. It was a very stressful job. In fact, I had a panic attack live on the air uh, in 2004 uh, while delivering some otherwise mundane headlines. The good news is that my nationally televised freakout ultimately led me to meditation, which I had actually long rejected as ridiculous. Uh, I was raised by a pair of atheist scientists. I'm a fidgety, skeptical guy. And th- that kind of uh, led me to unfairly lump meditation in with aura readings, vision boards, and dolphin healing. Um, But the practice really helped me with my anxiety and depression, and so my goal became to make meditation attractive to my fellow skeptics by ditching the New Age cliches and liberally using the F word. Um, (laughs) To my great surprise, this unorthodox approach uh, turned me into a a quasi-self-help guru. And a few years into this trip, I I decided that I wanted to get a sense of whether my inner work was having outer results. You know, was meditation making me a nicer person? And that's why I signed up for the 360. And now I will tell you about the results. The first 13 pages were dedicated to my sterling qualities. People talked about uh, how hardworking and intelligent I was. Many also said meditation had made me more caring. But then came 26 pages of beatdown, um... The first blow was that some reviewers noted that I had a penchant for being rude to junior staffers, which was deeply embarrassing. But it only got worse. I was called emotionally guarded, a diva and an authoritarian. I don't know why that's funny. Some people even questioned my motives for promoting meditation. It got so bad that at one point, my wife, who was reading it with me, got up and went to the bathroom and cried. (laughs) I think for me, the most painful part was realizing that the aspects of my personality that I was most ashamed of and had really tried to hide were in fact on full display for everybody. And those included my two most prominent and problematic demons, uh, anger and self-centeredness. Bottom line, meditation had helped, for sure, but I clearly retained the capacity to be a schmuck. And I-, I am not alone in this. All kinds of bad behavior have been on the rise. Reckless driving, unruly airline passengers, violent crime, online bullying, workplace incivility, tribal antagonism, even general self-centeredness. At times, it can really feel like our social fabric is unraveling. So after my 360, I decided to do some work on myself and to see if I could also learn some things that by extension, might help the species. I pulled every lever at my disposal. I did psychotherapy, communications coaching, bias training, couples counseling, and more. And while I was really grateful to be able to do all of this stuff and all of it helped, I was still finding myself too often getting selfish or snippy. So I signed up for a nine-day silent retreat where I would practice a kind of meditation that has been shown to boost your capacity for warmth. It's called loving-kindness which, as you might imagine, sounded to me like Valentine's Day with a gun to my head. Um... But I was in it to win it. I really wanted to be a nicer person. I kept getting tripped up, though, because uh, the woman who was running the retreat, my teacher, her name is Spring Washam, she kept insisting that if I wanted to be less of a jerk to other people, I needed to start by being less of a jerk to myself, which I thought was the kind of thing you hear from Instagram influencers and spin instructors. So... (laughs) As she even went so far as to suggest that when, when I saw my demons emerging in meditation, I should put my hand on my heart and say to myself, it's okay, sweetie, I'm here for you. <laughs> Hard pass. <laughs> pass a I was not going to do that. But over the ensuing uh, days of nonstop meditation, I did notice that my twin demons were in full effect, um, My anger had me rehearsing glorious, expletive-filled speeches I would deliver to my boss about the various promotions I deserved. My self-centeredness had me writing my own five-star Amazon reviews for my various books, praising my elegant prose and rugged good looks. And (laughs) in the face of all of this roostering and rage, I layered on an avalanche of self-criticism. I told myself a whole story about how I was an incurably self-obsessed, cranky monster who had cloven hooves and a retractable jaw. After about five or six days of drinking from this fire hose, I caved. Mid-meditation, I put my hand on my heart. And while I definitely was not going to call myself sweetie, I did silently say to myself, it's all good, dude, I know this sucks, but I've got you. This was very strange and embarrassing. Um, But in this moment, I had an epiphany. I realized that my demons... We're actually just ancient, fear-based, neurotic programs, probably injected into me by the culture or by my parents, and they were trying to help me. It was the organism trying to protect itself. And when I stopped fighting them, they calmed down for a few seconds. I didn't have to slay them. I just had to give them a high five. And this counterintuitive extension of warmth was not, I realized, it was not indulgence. It was radical disarmament. Here's the way I think about this. At any given moment, we humans have two choices or two spirals that are available to us. The first is what my friend Evelyn AAA calls the toilet vortex. The reason why this looks childish and ridiculous is that I drew it myself. Um, <laughs> the toilet vortex might start like this. You're picking on yourself because you don't like the way you look in the mirror, or you're unhappy with your level of productivity, or you have failed to achieve ketosis, whatever, and then you take that out on other people and then you are feeling more miserable, and then down you go. The vastly superior alternative is what I call the cheesy upward spiral. (laughs) This one was drawn by a professional. (laughs) As your inner weather gets balmier, because you've learned how to high-five your demons, that shows up in your relationships with other people. And because relationships are probably the most important variable when it comes to human flourishing, your inner weather improves even further, and up you go. And that is the whole point here. Self-love, properly understood, not as narcissism, but as having your own back, is not selfish. It makes you better at loving other people. And the flip side of this was on full display in my 360. All the ways in which I was torturing myself showed up in my relationships with other people. And as those relationships suffered, so did I. Taken together, my two excellent drawings uh, represent a kind of amateur, unified field theory of love. I call it... Me, comma, a love story. <laughs> That's a deliberately ridiculous name, but I, I am actually pretty serious about using the word love. Granted, it's a confusing term because we use it to apply to everything from our spouses to our children to you know, uh, gluten-free snickerdoodles. But, but, but I am comfortable embracing the broadness of the term. I consider love to be anything that falls within the human capacity to care, a capacity wired deeply into us via evolution. It's our ability to care, cooperate, and communicate that has allowed Homo sapiens to thrive. And it is a failure to exercise that muscle. It is a lack of love that I think is at the root of our most pressing problems, from inequality to violence to the climate crisis. Obviously, these are all massive problems that are going to require massive structural change. But at a baseline, they also require us to care about one another. And it is harder to do that when you're stuck in a ceaseless spiral of self-centered self-flagellation. Thank you. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is there's a geopolitical case for you to get your shit together. And the massively empowering news is that love is not an unalterable factory setting. It is a skill that you can train. It's actually a family of skills. After my 360, I learned a whole bunch of practices for upping my love game, and I'm going to share two with you right now that I think would be very easy to integrate into your life. The first is to boot up a practice of loving-kindness meditation. I should say that it, it does not require you to subscribe to some fancy metaphysical program, and it shouldn't take up too much time, maybe a few minutes, a couple times a week to start. The instructions are really simple, find a reasonably quiet place, assume a comfortable position, close your eyes, and begin by envisioning a really easy person, maybe a good friend, maybe a pet. And then you repeat in your mind four phrases, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. After you've generated a little warmth, you do a bait and switch and move on to yourself. Once again, you conjure the image and send the phrases. After that, it's on to a mentor, somebody who's helped you in your life. Then a neutral person, somebody you might overlook. Then a difficult person, probably not hard to find. And then we finish with all beings everywhere. To some of you, this may seem forced and treacly, but it's worth noting that the research shows that this practice has physiological, psychological, and even behavioral benefits. The other practice I'm going to recommend is to start count- consciously counterprogramming against your inner critic. Next time you notice yourself going down the toilet, if nobody's looking, put your hand on your heart and talk to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend. For ambitious people, this may be a little scary. You might fear it's going to erode your edge, but research shows that this uh, process of replacing your sadistic inner tyrant with a supportive inner coach who has high standards but is not a jerk about it makes you more likely to reach your goals. Now, I will cop to the fact that even though I've now retired from my job as a newsman and am a full-time meditation evangelist, I still go down the toilet on the regular. But I'm much more likely to access the upward spiral these days. In fact, three years after my 360, I got another one because I never learn. And this one was way different. People gushed about how much I had changed as a friend and a mentor and a colleague. They talked about specific meetings where I used to be a prosecutor and was now delightful. One person said his ego is shrinking, which I think was a compliment, and um, uh, another person said he's finding his heart, which the new me let pass. (laughs) After she finished reading, my wife turned to me and said, congratulations, now you're boring. I'm hoping that was a joke because, in my opinion, upping your love game is anything but boring. It's countercultural because it cuts against the never-enoughness and always-behindness that society seems to want us to feel. It's courageous because it's hard to look at your demons, and it's happiness-producing because when you high-five your demons, they don't own you as much. And all of that makes you more generous and more available. If that sounds grandiose or touchy-feely to you, let me put it to you another way. The view is so much better when you pull your head out of your ass. (laughs) Thank you very much.
1: I am thrilled to be here today with Dan Harris, former anchor and correspondent at ABC News for 21 years, a veteran Uh, He's the author of the book 10% Happier, and as you just listened, he he gave an incredible TED Talk, and it brings me such joy anytime I get time to spend with him. So welcome, Dan. It's great to have you here.
2: Thank you. Love seeing you always. Same here.
1: Same here. You know, it's been a year since your talk. Uh, So how are you doing, sweetie?
2: (laughs) Well played. I'm doing great. You know, life is... You know, not linear. People sometimes assume that you're going to arrive at some Shangri-La and it'll stay that way forever. Or There are lots of complicated things in my life and in everybody's life, no matter how lucky uh, I am. And I've had all the advantages that are available to a human. I've had them. And so these tools that I talked about in the talk, I use them all the time. I road test them in every circumstance. And uh, I have more confidence now than I did when I was on the stage in the utility of those tools.
1: Now, um, what demons have you been high fiving?
2: Uh, you know, in particular, the biggest problem I've had in the last year is I had a big, nasty, gnarly resurgence of panic around claustrophobia.
1: Interesting. Okay.
2: I have always had sort of a mild claustrophobia where, you know, I, I've never been able to take an MRI, for example. And there have been times in my life where I've been wary of elevators, but, you know, I've been able to work through it. But it got so bad in the fall of 2022 that I actually had to start getting off of airplanes, which I had never done before. I had flown in tiny airplanes and, and choppers and And um, and I wasn't able to get on elevators. I was having to walk flights of stairs. And and really, it it was really struggling. It was embarrassing, too, because, you know, I'm Mr. Happiness and Mr. Meditation Guy. And here I am like panicking again. It felt like a huge setback and maybe like exposed me as a fraud or something like that. And I started doing a lot of what's called exposure therapy, where you sort of gently, systematically expose yourself to the things that scare you. So I would go with a shrink to the mall in Westchester, New York, and ride the elevator for an hour. And um, that really worked. And so now I'm back in elevators and back on airplanes. I talk to myself in, in my saner moments like, oh. Life is messy. It's filled with all sorts of ups and downs. You have a brain that's predisposed to panic. And this is treatable. And you're just going to do it slowly and steadily. It's not a race. um, And you'll figure this out over time. And who knows, it may come back in five years, but you have the tools to deal with it. And the types of things I would say to you, Madupa, if you were struggling with it, I can say to myself, and that's super helpful.
1: Yeah. I mean what's so powerful about what you said it reminds me of there was one time where I was just in a down like every morning I wake up and cry. And then I had to say to myself maybe every morning for the rest of your life you're going to wake up and like is that such a bad thing? Cry it out. That's all right. And then one morning you just aren't crying and you're like, "Oh. <laughs> Interesting." Mm-hmm. So, how can we tell ourselves like whatever we're going through it's okay.
2: You know, y- you talk in your work around stress, you've taught me a lot about reframing. Um, when you're feeling physiological signs of stress, you can either tell yourself, I'm screwed, um, I'm about to whiff this, I'm in trouble. Or you can say, no, this is your body getting ready to act. And that kind of cognitive reframing is can be useful for everything. You know, it's just the way a good coach would talk to his or her or their players. And you can do that for yourself.
1: Well, the, it cracks me up because it makes me think about, A, we're both skeptics about meditation, like we were. And um, and it makes me think of, you know, just even that phrase, sweetie. And once I found myself telling people, when you feel that moment of, oh my gosh, what, what is going on? Tell, giving yourself that negative self-talk if it is about your body preparing for action, then maybe thank your body because it's yeah. telling you something. And that yeah. sounds so cheesy and corny and awful to me. Yeah. Like what well, I'm supposed to, my mind is saying like, watch out, danger, you're going to die. And I'm supposed to say, thank you, mind. You know, like, but that's a part of it.
2: It's cheesy, but what's the alternative? Um, as, as one meditation teacher has said, if you can't be cheesy, you can't be free. And I think that's just a beautiful way to put it. Um, What would you rather do? Rage against the natural functioning of your mind Um, or be like, oh, yeah, this is the as I said in my talk, this is the organism trying to protect itself. Thank you. Thank you for your service. But um, it's not needed right now.
1: It's not needed right now. I don't need you right now. Back up off me.
2: Yes. I think it's like a good natured version of step off.
1: That's right. Now. TED Business listeners are all ages, ranges, all that, and are thinking about how do we incorporate these tools that you talk about into their daily life or even into organizations. Some are leading organizations. What advice would you give someone who's leading an organization who knows that um, people are struggling with many of their demons? many of this, much of the stress that goes on. What what would you say to a leader?
2: A few kind of best practices for for leaders. This isn't um, a conclusive, definitive list, but just from my observation, if you're going to introduce practices like meditation, the first thing is to make it voluntary. What you don't want to do is shove it down people's throats. Second thing is to make it freer or cheap. So offering subscriptions to meditation apps or bringing in meditation teachers to to teach. Um, I think that's really helpful because it just lowers the barrier to entry. And then the third thing I think is is the hardest thing for leaders to do, but I think the most important, which is to model it themselves. Where I've seen meditation make the most penetration in an organization is where the leaders are clearly bought in. And that just sends a very powerful signal to the team that this isn't some weird uh, thing that we're trying to get you to do because we want you to be more compliant or whatever it's actually something that the leadership believes in deeply and is practicing daily um i often notice that that cultures change you know that fish always rots from the head to put it in the negative and you know and and to the extent that i've seen problems in in organizations where i've been the leader they're almost always maybe just straight up always the result of me not handling my dysfunction and then it metastasizes through the organization so i I think if you want to have a happy, calm, focused, compassionate, low-conflict organization, it really has to start from you.
1: Now, and it also has to start from you being willing and open to receive feedback. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, believe it or not, I subject every single one of my students to a 360 as part of their the leadership course. They have to do a 360 where they get their colleagues from prior work experiences and their current classmates to rate them. Yeah.
2: I know there are some people who feel like 360s can be too tough or, you know, can be damaging in some way. What's your view? So you're clearly pro 360. Would you add the caveat that it's important how it's administered and what kind of support you're getting before, during, and after the results?
1: Yeah. So I think that we need to be more self-aware, period. And the best way to do that is to get feedback from others. Now, I think when you systematize it, it allows for more broad feedback. When you make it anonymous, it allows for more clear, candid feedback. In a perfect world, you're a great leader who knows how to get that combination of candid feedback when a person can actually see you and say it, but most aren't good at that. We pair our 360s with executive coaching, so students get the opportunity to kind of debrief and unpack it with an executive coach. You had your wife. And I'm just kidding, (laughs) and uh, but but somebody who can say, okay, well, this is what I how should I interpret this? How should I think about this? Um, And then the other thing we do is they are also giving other people feedback, so it does give you a sensitivity around it. So if everyone is a part of a 360 process, I do think that's super helpful because it allows you to have the sensitivity of, oh wait, I'm on the receiving end, but also the sensitivity of I need to be thoughtful in giving it.
2: Yes. Okay. Okay, a couple things to say. One is that just listening to you talk, I was just reminded, I haven't seen you in a minute, I was just reminded how much I like you. Um, So that was just, that was what was on my face.
1: I feel the same way. Like, we need to hang more, okay? Like, period. We say this all the time, but we need to hang more.
2: The second thing I was thinking is that there's so much wisdom to that because... For me, when I got my 360, it was devastating. The information was devastating, but it came within a supportive, the support seemed really important. And and so to get back to what advice would I give to people who are either about to get a 360 or considering getting one is, I I think there are two pieces. One is, you know, just make sure that you're doing it in an environment where you're going to because you're going to learn really painful things. You want to have support and help in processing that information and somebody who's going to help you develop an action plan for, for dealing with it. And the, the second part is just to be willing to hear and to act on it in the knowledge that it will be principally to your benefit, that fixing this stuff will improve your life vastly.
1: So, so true. So, you conducted a personal 360 review. Did you have any idea at any point about how you were perceived?
2: There was a lot in there that I had no idea about. And, or I had some inkling and it was a source of deep shame, but I thought I was hiding it successfully from myself and others. And it was just so crazy to see it on print. And it was, you know, if you, you know, with the type of 360 I got, it wasn't like, you know, people were doing multiple choice. And so it was numbers. It was like I was getting raw quotes, page after page after page. So one section was about how I was rude to junior staffers, which was something I never knew about myself. And, it, and I was like, at first I was like, this just isn't true. And then it's like three pages of people saying the same thing over and over. It's like, I can't argue with this. Clearly it is true. And I really need to rethink this. And now, by the way, you know, those relationships are dramatically different. They're not perfect. But because those relationships are better, my life is better. And um, I can't stress that strongly enough. Like dealing with this stuff, the principal beneficiary will be you.
1: You mentioned conflict with colleagues, which I don't know anyone who doesn't have conflict with colleagues. So the question is, what do you do differently now in conflict?
2: Well, there are so many things, but I'll give you one tool that has been truly truly game-changing for me, and I'm sure you've heard of it, but um, reflective listening. Do you know what that is? Okay. She's nodding her head. I can see her listeners, but you can't. So what Madupa's nodding about is something called reflective listening. So I'll give you the basics of it. Um, It is when somebody's talking to you, repeat back to them in your own words, a very brief summary of what they've said. So if Madupa gives me a couple of paragraphs about uh, her plans for the upcoming weekend, I might say, oh, wow, so you're you're going to go hiking, you're going to do some meditation, and you're a little bit worried about this family dinner on Sunday night. Real quick summary, as, as um, my communications coach, whose name is Mudita Nisker, and is, she's amazing, she has often said, you just repeat the bones of the other person's message back to them. And this meets... A primordial human need, which is to be understood. It is what we want at our in our marrow, even though we often aren't really we have an ambient awareness of it. And when somebody does this for us, it's deeply satisfying, even though we might not even be able to crystallize or articulate why, but we want it. And so if you can do that for people, no matter how tense things are, if somebody's really coming at me with some tough feedback or complaining or whatever, if I can, instead of going into solutions mode or reacting blindly or angrily, if I can just train myself to reflect it back to them. um, It just takes so much of the tension out of the situation.
1: I love it. I love it. We all know we need to listen more and better. My colleague does um, an exercise where he has people listen like somebody who doesn't care and then listen like a friend and it's so powerful to be on the receiving end when you're saying something and somebody's just looking distracted or whatever and you know it's an exercise. You know it's yeah. not real, but you feel it. You feel it. And this idea of, you know, listening like you care kind of made me think about what you define love as in your talk.
2: It is a loaded word and it's we have so many Cultural associations with it, and we have some linguistic complexity in in our language in English because we just have one word, um, whereas in other languages they have many words for different kinds of love. You know, in in ancient Greece they had terms for friendly love, for romantic love, for uh, love for all beings everywhere. This kind of boundless, unconditional love. They really taxonomized this human capacity. We just have love. I really just try to. De- to define love as broadly and as capaciously as possible so that it can include what we traditionally use love for, which is romance, but also family, all the way down to, you know, friendships and to strangers. And there's so much data around all of this. Let me just start with like your interactions with strangers. Um, Barbara Fredrickson, the great um, psychologist, has done a lot of work to show that, what she calls micro interactions, holding the door open for somebody, um, how you talk to the barista, your relationship with whoever, you know, the the DoorDash or Uber Eats person who comes to deliver you the food. Just having a warm exchange there doesn't have to be, you know, that deep. Just having a warm exchange there and setting up your life that it's an, a, a string of these is. It has enormous physiological and psychological impacts. And then, again, friendship. What we know is that friendship is is not something that we talk about much as a skill, but it is an enormously important part of of a healthy life, and there are lots of ways to get better at boosting your friendships at work and outside of work. Um, So I I think of love as a broad category and as a skill that can be practiced in many, many ways. And just one final piece of data, and I didn't talk about this in the talk, but I just find it so compelling. There's this study that I know you've heard of, Madupa, that's been run out of Harvard for the last 80 or 90 years that have just followed people throughout the course of their lives, a a broad, diverse set of people in the Boston area. And now they're following their children and grandchildren. And what they found by following people over the course of their lives is they're able to figure out like what are the variables that lead to longevity um so health and also happiness and there's one one finding that just comes screaming out of the data which is that the people who live the longest healthiest lives have the best relationships so many people listening to this podcast are probably like optimizing for so many things they're working out maybe they wear an aura ring and then they're tracking their sleep they wear a fitbit yeah you've got one on right and we're like manicuring our linkedin pages and our instagram pages and we're doing all the you know we're listening to andrew huberman and we're getting the right amount of sunlight and all this stuff and all that stuff is great but the one thing to optimize is the quality of your relationships love is connection
1: like when you and your partner are not getting along it's like we are out of connection Not like I'm not in love. I don't feel those, you know, whatever, the warm fuzzies in my stomach. No, I am not connected right now. And I think that connection, the capacity to care, we need to incorporate more of this into our language. And I think it applies to organizations too. But ultimately, isn't that what it is, caring about someone?
2: Absolutely. For your colleagues, for your customers. You can't function without it. You, you know, so maybe love isn't the word that makes you comfortable within a, in a corporate context. And that's cool. You can call it connection. You can call it basic capacity to care, decency, civility, whatever you want to call it. These are all for me. Those are all the thing to know is without it, you're dead. And their skills, not factory settings. These are all things that you can work on and train and improve on. And that is extremely good news.
1: I love the skills not factory settings this is good that's good stuff you you also have some good good nuggets around words now what I really do need your help with though is um meta it's what Dan talked about at the end of his talk is like passing on like loving kindness to others and I guess one of the hardest parts of meta a is creating the time for it um, but you know, there is, there is, again, some of this corniness. How did you get yourself to a point where meta felt as it should for you?
2: I mean, meta, M-E-T-T-A, as an ancient uh, word from the Indian subcontinent, we, we often translate it as loving kindness. But I actually think that translation in and of itself is a little problematic because it sounds so grandiose. The proper translation would be friendliness. It's just a basic goodwill. And so you can train this through this meditation that I described in the talk. What this is, is exercise for the part of your brain that is capable of warmth. And we see it very clearly on the brain scans. It changes the way your brain works. It works in very interesting ways on bias, for example. And... We know this is a huge problem in society. We all have biases. They can have very pernicious impacts, especially on marginalized populations, but they can also have very pernicious impacts on you because you can overlook people who would otherwise be great sources of support and strength in your organization because you're wearing filters that were culturally imposed upon you um, through no fault of your own. And so this type of practice can, can just... Get rid of those blinkers, you know, and and it's 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 really kind of beautiful. And the final category for in, in a traditional meta practice is this um, unconditional love for everyone that um, you're sending out well wishes to all beings everywhere. And, it, and yes, this this can sound a little esoteric, a little out there, but there's a reason why this very quality is the cornerstone of. Of every major religion. And I'm not a religious person. However, I think it's hard to argue against the fact that there are certain inalienable truths, certain foundational, important truths that all religions have stumbled upon. And this capacity to give a shit about everybody, about the world, about all of nature is in us and is trainable. And will make you happier. And by the way, it'll make you healthier. It'll make you more popular. It'll make you more successful. So if if you don't want to do it just for the sheer awe-inspiring capacity, do it out of self-interest. I'm a huge proponent of self-interest. I am very self-interested. And so you asked before, and I'll finally answer the question you asked, what allowed me to get over the hump and do this corny thing? It's because I saw the science. You know, this is a technology that has real power, and I want those powers. I want. I. I don't want to walk around coiled up in, in self-involvement. It doesn't feel good. I'm aware of that, and so I'd like to undo that conditioning, and this is how you do it.
1: Look, you in our short time together have really captured one of the things that I know I'm working on and need to get better at. I mean, your talk does talk about having our own backs, but you're going to get a kick out of this little phrase that has been— one of the issues I deal with is, um, you ready? You ready for it? My inner child has a tiger mom, and it's me. (laughs) I don't know if I've shared it with my listeners, but uh, yes. And so like, I need to send meta and love to both and be kind and remember like, it's all right. Um, And that I have your back. I have your back. And it's just such an easy thing to forget because we are so hard on ourselves.
2: Yeah. And and by the way, thank you for your service, Tiger Mom. Like, you made it through an elite prep school in New York City where there were not a lot of people of color. You went to Harvard, also not a, a lot of people of color there. Now you're in a Columbia University business school. That Tiger Mom has done a lot of good work. But, you know, you can give her a break. She deserves a break. And you can achieve even more by having the attitude of the Tiger Mom switch to an attitude of, like, an awesome coach. Just the role that you yourself play for your students, you could play that for yourself, and you'll soar even higher.
1: One of the things talking to you always reminds me is that, like, all of our happiness is all in us. It's there for us to, like, take and savor and all that. But it takes work, and it's a lifetime of work. But what's on the other side is so beautiful. I like kind of stealing from Oprah when she um, talks about the things she knows for sure. Given all that you've studied, looked at, talked about, whatever, what are some things that you know for sure?
2: Here's one thing I've been thinking about recently. It's probably not an original thought, but I I've, I'd never heard it before I started thinking about it. There's so many bugs In the design of human nature, right? There's so many bugs, like bias being exhibit A. But this incredible feature that is often overlooked, which is that doing good for other people is doing good for yourself. And we can ride that really far as a troubled species. And this I know for sure. I mean, all the data support that kindness, generosity, friendliness all of which are just subsets of love, will benefit your brain and your body and your relationships, which will further benefit your brain and your body. And this is just a positive cycle. And what a cool thing about our design, that if you're a decent, kind person, it will redound to your benefit. Um, So of all the things that make me pessimistic, there are so many things that make me pessimistic about the species species. This one seems like a pretty clear route out of most of our messes.
1: I love that. I really do. Now, this book that you wrote, 10% Happier, that's, you know, bestseller, I read, that, I, and the company came out of it. Like, come on. Amazing. Rumor has it that there's a show that's coming out, too?
2: <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> this is very weird. Um I was contacted by this guy who made a lot of sitcoms. Like, there are a few steps that have to happen before the show actually gets made. But it, is, it looks like it might happen. And that is both absurd and deeply amusing And for me. And uh, if it happens, I will be happy.
1: I think that's awesome. For the world, which is that you have done so much good in this world by being vulnerable and sharing your story. Then writing about your story. Thank you for being you and for taking this time and for all you do and continue to do.
2: I appreciate that. I was having a tough day, so that was very, very nice to hear.
1: Well, it's
0: all truth.
2: I appreciate it.
0: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. click, 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 click. Rider's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress
2: less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
0: It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the Better Than Ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.
1: That's it for today. This episode was produced by Brittany Brown, edited by Alejandra Salazar, and fact-checked by Julia Dickerson. Special thanks to Michelle Quint, Corey Hajim, and Colin Helms. I'm Madupa Akinola. Talk to you again next week.